This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So in this mini-series, we've been considering from the book of Romans some of the consequences, some of the results, some of the implications of Jesus' resurrection. We've been saying, if the resurrection of Jesus, then what? What does it mean theologically for us? What does it mean practically for us? Uh, Before we stand and listen to uh, the text from Romans chapter 6 this week, I'm going to spend some time thinking about the historicity of the resurrection. Uh, Being the third sermon in this mini-series, this shouldn't be surprising to you that we're going to go on this rabbit trail together. Uh, We've said repeatedly over the last few weeks that Paul simply presumes uh, that the resurrection happened in the book of Romans. And so we've said that for Paul, it's not sort of if then, it's more of a since then. It's not if Jesus was raised, then these would be the implications for us. It's since Jesus was raised, these are the implications for us. But for our purposes, uh, we are not doubting the resurrection at all when we entitle the miniseries, If Then. We're just indicating in that title that we want to give thought to and evidence for the resurrection uh, each and every week. Uh, We're doing this because we're trying to bolster our faith in the resurrection. We're doing this because the Bible says as we believe in the resurrection, uh, we experience more freedom and more joy and more hope and more power. And so when we are lacking in those realities in our life, a place to go is to the certainty of the resurrection uh, with the sequencing resulting in our improvement uh, in joy and hope and freedom, etc., etc. So two weeks ago, we gave thought to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. This is where Paul reminds his readers that Jesus appeared in person uh, to more than 500 people after his resurrection, but before his ascension. And so you and I, as readers of 1 Corinthians 15, we can't go back and interview those people and ask them about their interaction with Jesus. But Paul's point, of course, was that his original audience, some 15 years after the resurrection, that his original audience could go back and interview those 500 plus people who saw Jesus alive. And so, of course, Paul knows that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is an extraordinary event in history. In fact, he's the only one who was raised to eternal life from, from, de- from deadness, okay? He, he wasn't resuscitated. Uh, he wasn't resurrected to then die again later, if you will. He was raised to glory. And so because it's so extraordinary, Paul says, look, go talk to the 500 ordinary people who interacted with him, and that will bolster your faith in the resurrection. Uh, Last week, we gave thought to the various details of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection as they're recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you were here, you're going to remember that we said that the details uh, of Jesus' death and resurrection would have never been fabricated. They would have never been made up. They would have never been lies uh, made up by those looking for power and looking for honor in lieu of Jesus' absence. So remember, the critics of the resurrection say the followers of Jesus made that up. So they could, have pow- they could have power and honor. They, they missed what they had when Jesus was around. But we looked last week at the evidence in the New Testament, in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we looked at the details of the story. And we just thought about the fact that the New Testament church leaders uh, were uh, and looked very weak and very dishonorable in how Jesus died and the, the moments even after his resurrection. And so we said that, that those gospel accounts, those historical narratives of Jesus' resurrection 
would not have been made up by people looking for power if they were so weak. And it would not be made up by people looking for honor if they acted so dishonorably. This week, I want to consider what we learned from church history. I want to think about uh, those people uh, that personally witnessed Jesus after his resurrection and before his ascension. Okay, Did you know, and and maybe you do, that that church historians will tell you that most of Jesus' original 12 died as martyrs? Most of the original 12 died at the hands of others because they would not deny Jesus. Okay, so think about it. These historical works that tell us about the demise of the 12, they are not equal to the Bible, okay? But the Bible does include the martyrdom of Stephen, for example. The Bible does allude to a lot of persecutions and a lot of martyrs. Jesus specifically said that Peter would die the death of crucifixion. He promised him that at the end of John. Jesus told all of his disciples that they would be treated just like him after his resurrection, alluding to the persecutions he endured and presumably the death he endured. And again, many of Jesus' original apostles were reportedly crucified or beheaded or speared or beaten to death or stoned or thrown from tall buildings. And isn't it interesting that the very ones who, when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, deserted him for fear of death, isn't it interesting that those very ones were compelled to die for Jesus' name at a later point in time. I mean, think about how did, that, how did that happen? How does that happen in a person's life? How does a person become confident about life after death in the face of death? They, they were an eyewitness of the one who conquered death. Uh, think about how a few hundred people take the good news of Jesus around the known world. That a few hundred people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus went and bore witness to him. And and those who believed them, they eventually advanced Christianity to the extent uh, that any historian will tell you that that Christianity was the most pervasive religion in the Roman Empire after a few hundred years. And how did they do this even though they were enduring significant and intense persecution? Well, they saw the evidence uh, of the fact that Jesus was risen, and that there was life after death. And so they couldn't deny what they knew to be true, and what they knew to be true was that there was life after death, and that gave them tenacity and joy even in the face of death. So, of course, in our day and age, there are many daily who still die for the faith. We forget this often in the States. There are many who die daily because they refuse to renounce Jesus. They refuse to deny his resurrection. And in my limited travels, I have always found it amazing that in those places where there is intense persecution, there are frequent visions of Jesus and, quote, extraordinary experiences of Jesus for them that are quite intense and extraordinary compared to what is ordinary for us. And I've often wondered if it happens that way so that those being persecuted most intensely would have a greater experience of and more evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And I personally think it's a grace of Jesus to give them greater confidence in, what, in that which is true, which is eternal and, and abundant life with him after death, in order to increase their tenacity and joy in the face of death. When you think about the zealous members of many other world religions, you think of those who are willing to kill other people for the advancement of their message. 
But for 2,000 years now, with the gospel and with Christianity, the most zealous members of the faith don't kill other people to advance their message. They're willing to be killed for the truth of their message. And so as we have said before, every one of us has to exercise faith when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. Because we weren't there to see him exit the womb, and because we weren't, uh, womb, woo, I need a sabbatical. (laughs) Because we weren't there to see him exit the tomb, we will have to believe, and because we weren't there to see him stay in the tomb, right, we'll have to believe, we'll have to exercise faith one way or the other. And again, I am just being honest with you that when I am doubting the resurrection, it helps me a lot to go back to these three spheres and think about uh, the facts and the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. I try to get myself to the place where it takes more blind faith for me to doubt the resurrection of Jesus than to presume with Paul that it's true. So that when I'm reading Paul, the implications of the resurrection are certainly mine. And so with that being said, I'm going to have you stand in just a moment, and we're going to hear Romans 6, and I'm going to read to you a long passage in Romans 6. And in this passage, Paul presumes that Jesus was raised. And then this morning, we're going to focus on the fact that he anchors our sanctification. He anchors our development into the likeness of Christ, into the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you would, please stand and hear God's word. Uh, together. But before we, before we hear the word, let's pray aloud this corporate prayer of illumination. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is truth. By your spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe your word with joy. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, a long text. If you're willing and able, please stand. Uh, know now, as I read it, I do not endeavor to unpack all of it. Chapter 6, verse 1, what, sh- what shall we say then? Or do we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And and, and consider yourself members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, 
but under grace. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right, we have about 20 minutes to consider a passage that we would not uh, effectively explore in six weeks, okay? So I'm not even going to try to cover all the text, but I want us to quickly see three things, okay? First, Paul asks a rhetorical question about sanctification. Second, Paul gives a radical answer for sanctification. And third, Paul commands a reasoned response in sanctification, okay? A rhetorical question a radical answer, a reasoned response. Okay, quickly. First, Paul asks a rhetorical question about sanctification. Look at verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue or remain or persist in sin that grace may abound? And so obviously we're in the sixth chapter of a book. Paul is not asking this question out of the blue, okay? In the first five chapters of Romans, Paul has been explaining the gospel of Jesus. And in particular, Paul has explained and emphasized that Christianity is not about what we achieve, but Christianity is about what we receive by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Every other major world religion teaches us that we have to achieve God's blessing, or at least try to achieve his blessing. Only Christianity teaches that we must receive God's blessing, and in fact, give up on our efforts to achieve God's blessing. A big part of faith in the Bible is choosing to not attempt to achieve God's blessing. If you were here last, uh, the last two weeks, you know that in chapter 5, Paul is, is teaching on justification and glorification. In regards to justification, Paul has taught that God declares Christians righteous. He declares us lovely by grace, even though we were and are quite unlovely and quite rebellious. Second, in regards to glorification, Paul taught that we enjoy the certain hope of future glory now. In other words, we know right now that we will be included in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. And Paul argues in chapter 5, he argues, after all, if God sent his beloved son to die for us when we were hated by God, that's, that's verse 10, will he not also be sure to finish this work of salvation in the future now that he loves us? And so justification, he declares you righteous. Glorification, you know right now that you will forever be with Jesus. And so in chapter 5, Paul is talking about this incredible security that few of us really experience. He says that Christians, that believers cannot earn God's love, and, and Christians can do absolutely nothing to lose God's love. It's utterly received, never achieved. And since that's what Paul has been teaching for five chapters, since Paul has been building this theological argument for justification and glorification, he must have known that some would either ask this question in verse 1, or he must have been frequently asked this rhetorical question recorded there. And so some commentators think that the rhetorical question was asked of Paul by sarcastic opponents. So, Are we to continue in this sin so that grace can abound? How foolish is that? Uh, Some think that the rhetorical question is being asked by uh, his sincere but misguided uh, proponents, a more inquisitive fashion. So are we to continue and persist in sin so that God's grace is on display even more? 
regardless of who asked it and why they asked it or whether or not Paul was being asked or anticipating being asked, he asked the rhetorical question in verse 1 because he really wanted to give the radical answer in verse 2. So first, the rhetorical question about sanctification. Second, the radical answer for or in support of sanctification. Look at verse 2. Paul answers the rhetorical question this way, by no means. By no means is the English Standard Version's translation of of one of Paul's favorite little enigmatic expressions. Uh, In the Greek, uh, a lot of you have heard this, a lot of you know this, in the Greek it reads this way, meganoito. Me is a negative particle. It's just simply translated no. Genoito is from the verb to be, to exist, to happen. That's why some of the more literal translations will translate it this way. May it never be. A lot of commentators will tell you that the easiest way to translate this and the way that fits most and best in Romans chapter 6 is to hear it this way. It cannot be. So the rhetorical question is this. Are we to continue in sin? And the radical answer is this. It can't happen. Impossible. That's French. In verse 2, Paul asks a rhetorical question as part of his radical answer. He writes in verse 2, how can we dot, dot, dot. And he's implying that we can't. How can we live in sin? We can't. And to his opponents who might be saying, listen, if you teach a gospel of grace, Christians are going to sin more. Paul says to the Judaizer and the Pharisee and the parent, it can't happen. Christians can't sin more than they used to once they believe. To his proponents who might ask, should we remain in sin so that God's grace can abound and increase and be on display and bring glory to God? Paul says, can't happen. Can't be done. Not only can a Christian not sin more than they did before they were converted, a Christian can't even continue in the same amount of sin once they're converted. If someone says they're a Christian and they truly sin as much or more than they sinned prior to their, quote, conversion, Paul is teaching us that they're not really Christian and they were never truly converted. In verse 2, Paul writes, how can a person who died to sin still continue to live in sin? In Romans chapter 6, Paul is teaching that a lot more happened at our conversion than us simply understanding a few facts and receiving a, a, a brand spanking new get out of jail free card. Paul is saying in Romans 6, he's teaching that at our conversion, the person we were before becoming a Christian The person we were, dominated by sin, died. And a new person, a person alive to God in Christ, was brought to life. More accurately, and this is confusing, this obliterates our notions of space and time. But the most accurate thing to say is this. In Romans 6, Paul is teaching that at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... The enslaved to sin person we were before before becoming a Christian died with Jesus on the cross. And the new self we are now who is alive to God was raised to life in his resurrection. 
when I read the passage, if you're familiar with the text, the way that Paul talks about God's work outside of time and space as we normally experience it was probably lost on us. But I want you to go back sometime and read how Paul pays no attention to these ordinary time uh, boundaries of time and space. But again, for the sake of time, I can't go through all these verses. I cannot unpack all of verses 2 through 10. But I want to summarize for you what Paul is teaching in these verses. Are you ready? Paul teaches this. In their union. That is a huge word theologically. Union. In their union with Jesus, Christians somehow, some way, died with Jesus on the cross. And Christians somehow, some way, were raised with Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 5. A clear example. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now again, I know this can be quite confusing, but if you read through this passage again this afternoon, you're going to see that in this text, Paul presumes that we somehow, some way, were with Jesus and in Jesus when he died, when he was buried, and when he was raised to life. And you say, why does it matter? Because it's how Paul chose to answer a very practical question. Can we keep on sinning? He says, no, you can't. He doesn't say, no, you mustn't. He says, no, you can't. And he says, because mysteriously, listen to this, the person you were pre-conversion died with Jesus pre-you. The person you were pre-conversion, for me, that's 75 to 93. That person died before I was born. Verse 2. How can we who died to sin, past tense, still present tense, live in it? And I realize that this may be alarming to some of us. Because we realize that all of us continue to sin and all of us still sin in our lives. And we're alarmed because we're wondering if this means that we're not Christians. We're alarmed because we're wondering, does this obliterate all that Paul just said? But when Paul says that we can't continue in and can't live in sin, verses 1 and 2, he doesn't mean uh, that Christians don't continue to sin. And he doesn't mean that Christians don't still sin in their lives. He means that Christians can't remain where they were, verse 1, and can't always live in sin, verse 2. Look at verse 6 with me. Paul's going to make this really obvious. Paul says, We know that our old self, our former self, was crucified, past tense, with him. Do you see the union? In order that the body of sin might be across time brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be in the present enslaved to sin. Okay, listen carefully. Paul uses this title, this title of old self. He uses it in Romans 6. He uses it in Ephesians 4. He uses it in Colossians 3. And he uses it not to describe some part of you, uh, some part of who you are now when you sin. Paul calls that reality the flesh. This is not that part of you now uh, that, that wins the day when you sin. The old self is the term Paul uses to describe who we were when we could only sin. The old self, or the former self, was enslaved to sin, could only sin, had to sin. And so now, while Christians can still sin, they can also, verse 4, 
walk in newness of life. And so Paul presumes in verse six that the body of sin will be brought to nothing across time, but that the old self, the pre-conversion self, that self that could only sin, somehow, some way, was crucified with Jesus on the cross. And the question is not, do you have to get better? But how fast will you get better? The question is not, can we use God's grace to keep sinning? But to what extent will we be used by God's grace? You see, the abounding of God's grace, the flourishing of God's grace, the triumph of God's grace is most magnificently displayed, not by us remaining in sin, but in us growing out of sin. God's grace abounds, superabounds, overflows, as it both lovingly embraces us in our sin, and then verse 7 frees us from sin, verse 6 decreases our sin, verse 4 enables us to walk in newness of life. So finally, for our second point, I want to make a connection to the mini-series, the If-Then series. Look at verse 4. Notice how Paul ties our sanctification. He anchors our sanctification, our new life. He anchors it in the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And Paul is saying that in the same way that Christ was raised from the dead, in that same way, we walk in new life. To say it differently, Paul says that Christ was raised from the dead by the glory or the expressed power of the Father. And so we too walk in newness of life by the glory and the expressed power of God the Father. And so again, why can't we remain in sin? Why can't we become more sinful? Why couldn't we choose to sin more so that God's grace would abound? Paul says the same power that God exerted in bringing Jesus back from the dead is the power inside of you for new living. And Paul's basically saying you are not more powerful than God. You see, for Christians, it doesn't ultimately matter if they want to sin more or less. What ultimately matters is that God wants them to sin less and God wants them to walk in newness of life more and more. The rhetorical question presumes that the Christian ultimately decides if they sin more or less. But Paul is saying, look, you're looking at this the wrong way. It's God for the Christian who made the decision before they were even knit together in their mother's wombs to crucify the old self on the cross with Jesus. And it's not whether or not the Christian decides to sin more or less. It's that God's already decided that they're going to sin less. We put the gospel in the box of forgiveness. Paul, more often than not, talks about the gospel as this incredible power for new living. That's what he's saying here. It's just not up to us. That decision has been made and it has been in play for 2,000 years. So first, a rhetorical question about sanctification. Second, a radical answer for or in support of sanctification. 
And third, Paul commands a reasoned response in sanctification. Okay, if you want further proof that Paul doesn't expect us to be perfect, uh, come read uh, verse 11 and following with me. But before we read verse 11, I I want you to notice, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 11. I want you to notice that in the first 10 verses of chapter chapter 6, Paul doesn't command us to do anything. In fact, the first, 11, uh, the first 10 verses, excuse me, of chapter 6 are just like the first five chapters of the entire book. Paul has been, for five and a half chapters, explaining reality to his readers. He has been giving fact after fact after fact. But in verse 11 of chapter 6, he gives the first command of the entire book. After he explains these beautiful truths on justification, sanctification, and glorification... He finally tells us to do something. He finally tells us a command. He finally stops teaching and he starts telling. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In the original Greek, there's no word for must. We put that in there to put more weight on ourselves than we should. It's actually really, really simple in the Greek. It's really relaxed. It's just like this. So you also... Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God because it's true. You feel the difference? You must. It's true. Why not just consider it that way? And you know what Paul's saying? He's saying you might as well think about all of this the way God thinks about all of this. You are dead to sin and you are alive to God and you are empowered by God to walk in newness of life. Paul's saying, it's happening to you. You might as well come to the place where you understand it. The Greek word for consider, if you're an accountant, this is going to make you happy. This word is an accounting term. It meant to count and to calculate and to forecast. And Paul is saying, our first step in our experience of sanctification is very similar to the work of an accountant. This is the only way the gospel is similar to the work of an accountant. That's for all of us who really struggled on April 15th. In the same way that an accountant captures and calculates financial realities and helps everyone live in light of that reality, our first step in sanctification is also to capture and to calculate and to align. If God decided before we were born to crucify the version of us that could only sin, If God decided before we were born that he was going to decrease our sinfulness across time, if God decided before we were born that he was going to lead us into newness of life, it's a reasonable response to capture, to calculate, to forecast, and to align ourselves with that reality. Paul is saying, we know that God is going to do this. And so the first rule of sanctification is to consider it done. Then look at verse 12. Therefore, then, this is connected to verse 11, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Like, that's my experience of sin. The first verse that I can align with, right? So before our conversion, when God applied to us so, so, so this is, well, I'll, I'll go with that. Before our conversion, we were enslaved to sin. We were dominated by sin. We were powerless to sin. 
But now, while sin still thinks it's in control, so Paul has personified sin. Paul says, while sin is still there trying to boss you around, he simply says, let not sin literally be king in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So to be sure, Christians can still give in to sin. Christians can still play along as if sin is more powerful than them. But Paul says that the resurrection of power, the resurrection power of God is available to us whenever we want to stop the charade. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful now, so I'll use it again. Did you know that an adult circus elephant will stand completely still if you simply tie a rope around its neck? The adult elephant that has access to the kind of power that can knock over a cement wall will stand perfectly still, completely dominated by a restraint that my five-year-old son would overpower instantly. Why? Because when they were young, their trainers would tie a massive rope around their neck and bury that rope into cement, into cement, and they would break the spirit of the elephant and teach the elephant that it was powerless whenever a rope was around its neck. And so you see, based on past experience, the rope is king for the rest of the elephant's life. Even though in their present life, they have access to so much power. This is also the case for Christians when it comes to sin. To be sure, we do, all, we, we do all allow sin to be king in our lives over and over. But Paul is clearly teaching us here that it doesn't have to be that way. Paul clearly says that there is never a temptation in our life that is beyond what we can bear. And what that teaches me is that I will continue to sin, but I never, ever have to sin. Is our experience of the past causing us to forget the resurrection power in the present? I mean, again, don't forget the little word therefore in verse 12. He's connecting 12 to 11. When we play along with the charade of sin being our master, it's because we've stopped living in light of and in line with what is true of God's sanctifying work in us. We've stopped accounting for what is true. Let's pray. Most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Uh, We, uh, in our weak moments, wish that you would come and just forgive us and leave us alone. But in our most human moments, we are very, very grateful that your gospel is not just the good news of you forgiving us, but it's the good news of you transforming us. We thank you, uh, Jesus, that you came and lived such a glorious life so that you, by your Holy Spirit, might guide and lead us into the abundant and victorious life. Uh, We thank you, Jesus, that you have promised, and you are trustworthy and true, you have promised that in whatever situation we're in, we have in you all the power we need to live righteously, lovingly, lovingly, holy. Uh, We thank you, Jesus, that even now, as we do continue to sin, we still have the hope of glory. Because after all, we did nothing to earn this. 
and we can do nothing to lose this. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would fill us fresh and new and that you would give us an understanding of this text in our lives, that we would not lean in pessimistically, but that we would lean in humbly and optimistically, that the one who is in us is strong enough to support us and supply us in every temptation. We thank you for this very complicated passage and this complex passage and this passage that really blows our minds in a lot of ways. We pray that you would feed us from this text this week and beyond. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.